Hey, my friends, thanks for joining me for another episode of Real Live Talk. I'm so excited that you're here to check out this conversation. My guest for this episode is Scott T. Hendrick. Scott is a Chief Master Sergeant in the United States Air Force, and he's also currently the Chief of Operations for the nonprofit organization Liberty Organization for Veterans and Emergency Responders. And uh, what Liberty is really all about, it's about providing recuperation, solace, and healing from the physical and mental injuries suffered or received during the line of duty. They provide quality free services to active duty veterans and first responders, as well as their families. And so for this conversation, we really focused a lot on mental health. We also talked about resiliency. And i just like to mention up front, just in case there's somebody listening who might be uh, negatively affected by a conversation like this, I do just want to give you a warning up front. We do uh, talk quite a bit about mental health, about PTSD. We talk about suicide. Uh, different things like this come up in this conversation. So if those topics can uh, negatively affect you, you may want to consider skipping this episode. Uh, but I do appreciate you guys again for taking the time to listen. Scott's an awesome guy. Let me just say his background includes various duties as an electronic warfare system specialist, as well as a squadron safety program manager, Air Force Repair Enhancement Program Manager, Flight Chief. Uh, again, the list goes on and on. Um, he also has a huge heart for people and for people to walk in freedom. And so thank you guys again for being here. Without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, jump into this conversation with Chief Scott T. Hendrick. All right. We are live. So all I guess right. the intro music didn't queue up that time for some reason, Scott. So <laughs> Yeah, I didn't hear it. It's all good. So that threw me off a little bit. But uh, we are live. We are we're rolling, man. Um, cheers, my friend. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your service, first of all. It's a privilege really just to know you. And I'm excited for our conversation today and just to Absolutely. spend some time with you, you and, and talk to you and find out about a little bit about um, your background and uh, and some of the things that you're doing for veterans and first responders. And I'm just really excited about this conversation. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah, hopefully it's going to be a good one. Thank you. So, Scott, if you could just share a little bit with us uh, about your background, your credentials, and, uh, and then a little bit more about, about what you do. Awesome. Absolutely. So... <laughs> at the ripe age of uh, 18 years old, fresh out of college dropout uh, experience. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I came out of high school as a, in the National Honor Society, the whole nine yards. Experienced some things towards the end of my junior year that we'll talk about here a little bit later, trauma related. And it kind of had a fundamental shift in who I was as an individual. Kind of wasted my experience in college uh, after mm. one ripe semester. Ended back up at, at the house, uh, living in my old bedroom. And my mom said, "Look, you need to go out into the world and and figure life out." And so, contacted the recruiter, and you know, off I went. And enlisted in, in the Air Force on the fifteenth of January, nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, for some people, that sounds like probably a bazillion years ago. For me, it feels like yesterday. Uh, and 100 years all in the same time. So <laughs> yeah. took off, uh, went to San Antonio, went through basic training. It was about six weeks through that and then went to tech school, which was about you know eight months to 10 months to learn how to be electronic warfare uh, journeyman. So, mm -hmm. you know, I did that for 20 plus years until I worked myself into a desk job. I ended up flying desk every day uh, for the last six to eight years of my career. But 
um, you know, culminated in the end, uh, you know, pushing a F-22 squadron here at Eglin Air Force Base uh, for about a year until I decided to retire. So that was a that was a huge, huge turn of events and, and everything. And then, you know, some say, oh, how are you on active duty and you have a goatee? <laughs> um, I'm <laughs> participating in the skills bridge program right now. And so basically what that is, is you get the last six months of your enlistment. You get to go learn new skills to kind of help you transition from active duty into civilian. So if the company or organization to include nonprofits qualifies uh, based on their mission and, and how extensive their training is and what you'll learn, you know, that's that's a skill bridge program that, you know, I'm participating in. And now I'm working with Liberty Organization for Veterans and emergency responders where I'm currently the chief of operations, which is like the, you know, master of everything all the time, uh, drinking from a fire hose. When, when we first got the training rip that was sent to me, you know, I, it, and it's broken down week by week, everything that you learn from marketing to funding to, you know, everything about how to run a nonprofit organization. So it's been, well, it's been like drinking from a fire hose for the last six months, which has been exciting um, to say the least. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, what led you to, well, actually uh, I don't want to, yeah, let's, yeah, let's go ahead and do that now. Um, what led you to, as part of the, um, you said it's the skills bridge program. Skill bridge. Um, mm -hmm. it's skill bridge, excuse me. As part of the skill bridge program, what led you specifically to uh, work with the organization that you are working with now? Okay, with so I got back from my deployment and I spent seven, eight months-ish uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, I saw some things basically on computer systems. I wasn't directly involved, but saw a lot of things via, you know, IT uh, to validate and verify that you know, subsystems that we were responsible for were working and working effectively. So you get to see those things over and over and over again. At first, you're like, wow, this is this is really cool, right? We're over there. We're doing our nation's bidding. This is, you know, we're, we're fighting the good fight, right? Like everybody says. Yeah. And then the gravity of the situation, the humanity part of it starts to mm. weigh on you after a while, right? You can, you know, you watch infrastructure get blown up you watch bridges and things of that nature and there's no emotional attachment to that you you see it and you're like okay great that that blew up but when you see you know other things that's when you know things start to weigh on your mind and, and you start to it it you have it has effects right you can't look at that stuff um and not have an effect on you um from a, a morality perspective and and from mm -hmm. a mental aspect as well so you know, things start getting a little difficult to carry. So I got back from the Middle East and uh, a friend of mine called me, sent me some messages. He saw my um, welcome home. Um, you know, the thing, everybody goes to the airport and they take the obligatory pictures and the family's there and everybody's yeah. there and, yeah. you know, everybody's happy and, and, but you're, you're struggling, right? You're, wow. there's a lot, it's very heavy. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you step back, you try to step back into that normal life. And so this individual saw those, saw those Facebook photos and they said, look, man, like you have the 300 yard stare, like something's wrong. Um, and I was like, nothing's wrong with me. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Denial, the whole nine yards. So they said, look, let's, let's get you down to Tallahassee. There's a program where, 
you can learn this protocol. It'll, it'll help you with your PTSD. It'll help, you know, um, neutralize those negative emotions and things of that nature. So I went and did that. And, and that was through the research recognition project. Um, that's Dr. Frank Burke. Right. And so I'm not a licensed mental health counselor. And they're like, Hey, we want to test this out and see if normal like civilians, but military. Right. So if a, when I say civilian, not a licensed mental health counselor, but a, a someone who hasn't had that training or certification to, to be able to administer this, would it work? And could you efficiently and effectively administer the protocol? And so I went through that and I felt immediate results. I, the squadron that I was working in at the time, I brought somebody with me and said, because his PTSD was way worse than mine, right? That's what we all well, do. We all validate mm -hmm. and say, well, his is worse than mine. So let's help him. And, and you know, I was doing the same thing. So I figured if, if it was going to you know, work, I wanted it to work for me as well as the, the guy that works for me back in the squadron. So, and it did, you know, it worked magnificently. And, and then, so over the next two years, what, what I did is, you know, I just, you know, when I saw someone struggling, I would say, Hey, you know, let's, would you like some help with this? Right. I, I noticed yeah. some things, yeah. would you like some help? And in a vast majority of the people are like, yeah, like I've been struggling for a long mm -hmm. time. Right. And so that, you know, for me as a senior enlisted leader in the air force, that was a, that was a huge tool to have in my toolbox. You know, I could see and spot something in somebody and then kind of walk them through the protocol. And next thing you know, they're, you know, they're feeling refreshed. They're sleeping better at night, you know. And so that was very, you know, that was very rewarding, like super rewarding to to see people overcome the trauma, overcome things that they've been carrying for, you know, sometimes 10, 15, 20 years. And so I did that for a while. And then uh, my wife's cousin reached out to me and she said, hey, do you do you still do that thing? Because people don't really know. You know, when we talk about protocols and modalities and things of that nature in the licensed mental health world, a lot of people don't really understand what that is. Right. So they mm. so they say, hey, do you do that thing? Right. Or, or brain voodoo or whatever you want to call it. And so I said, yeah, you know, <laughs> I still do the thing. And so they and she said, hey, would you you know, would you mind? I have a really good friend of mine who own who's the president of a nonprofit organization that helps veterans and emergency responders. Would you mind working with him? And his name, you know, uh, is is Mike. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, so I called up Mike, said, hey, man, you know, tell me about your organization, you know, and he wanted to know about what we did. So we chatted for about an hour on the phone. And I said, all right. I said, this is what I'll do. I, you know, I'll, I'll fly to Virginia because that's where he's at. Hmm. I said, I'll fly to Virginia on my own dime. I'll come to you and I'll work with you for about 40 minutes, two days. And if you don't feel any different, then you never see me again, right? There's no big, no big deal. You don't have to vocalize your trauma. You don't have to tell me about your trauma. Um, you know, we'll, we'll run through the protocol. And then if you feel better, th then we have a decision to make. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah. okay, cool. Like, ha ha, you know, mm -hmm. he said, well, what's the decision? And I said, well, if you feel better, then it's our responsibility to add this to your uh, nonprofit's mission. And then take this nationwide because he had been dealing predominant, predominantly in the Norfolk uh, Hampton Roads area, helping veterans with homelessness and jobs and all kinds of wonderful work. And he said, OK, deal. Right. So he's a lieutenant colonel, retired Marine. Right. Polar opposite of me. Right. So officer Marine enlisted Air Force. 
you know, there were some jokes back and forth, um, you know, about five-star hotels and, you know, maybe the Marines eating crayons from time to time. And so after we had some banter, I said, okay, cool. I'll, I'm going to fly in and, and work with you. And so that's what I did. And I met with him, you know, he was super excited about, you know, meeting me and kind of going through this because he, you know, and the only reason I'm sharing this is because he, he openly shares this story as well. Um, mm. You know, he, he'd been through, you know, the medication, he had been through, you know, inpatient, outpatient, all kinds of stuff, still seeing a, a therapist the whole time, you know, not being able to process, you know, that trauma that he had been holding on to for a, a very long time. So I met with him, worked with him for about 40 minutes, and he was just blown away, like completely blown away wow. about, you know, how he could think about the trauma and there wouldn't be a visceral emotional response within him in which he couldn't control his emotions. And, you know, we, we kind of talked through what that meant and how it worked and, and, you know, removing the negative attachment to the memory and moving the memory um, into the part of the brain where it belongs for long-term storage versus, you know, kind of hanging out and residing in your amygdala where it's fight, flight, freezer, fold. You know, when, when you think mm -hmm. about it, you're, there's a, you know, your body's reaction is just instant and you, it's involuntary. And sometimes you don't even know what's going to happen and it happens. And so when we got done, I looked at him and I said, okay, like now we have a decision to make. Is this something that, you know, you think we can take nationwide? And he's like, absolutely, let's do it. And so, you know, it just so happens within a, several months after that, I applied to, for the skills bridge coordinate, you know, to be part of the skills bridge program. And then we got Liberty um, approved as an approved organization. And then, you know, we just hit the ground running from there and, and building and building and building and building into kind of what we are today. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I had a question here, so I'm going to just mention the name again of the nonprofit. It's Liberty Organization for Veterans and Emergency Responders. Um, and Scott, something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, you know, you mentioned that sort of reunion with the family of somebody who's been um, in the military, somebody who's been, uh, you know, maybe deployed or on active duty or something like that. And then uh, coming home and being reunited with the family. And there's sort of there's that photo moment and everybody's happy and celebrating. But then what you mentioned is that so often internally for the man or the woman who's uh, who's returning from that situation, right. you know, whether they were gone for whether it was a matter of months or years, you know, whatever, whatever we're talking about, they're returning from that really completely life altering, life changing experience and kind of being in the moment, but sort of at the same time feeling like maybe not fully able to, to deal with or not having come to grips yet with the fact that like that part of my life has come to an end or it's in a break or something like that. And I'm, and I'm home now and sort of being in that atmosphere of, uh, I'm sure wanting to reconnect with family and friends, but, but again, there being this piece of them that's just been forever changed. Their life has been forever changed and affected by, um, the, the life that they've, you know, now lived and experienced as, as a, uh, somebody who's been, you know, in a military context, how, how normal, I mean, would you say that that is for, um, for men and women that are returning home after having been on a deployment or something like that and returning home and it's like the family, the friends don't really 
know what they've gone through. Obviously, you know, they can't fully understand what they've been through. But how normal would you say that is for that sort of disconnect to take place in the mind of the person that's returning and now trying to kind of get to jump back into civilian lifestyle? And uh, how would you say how normal would you say that is? And then if you could talk a little bit about some of the difficulty that's involved there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's from an environmental perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So. My wife and I have been married for a very long time. She was, she's been with me through the entire career, Air Force career. And, you know, I've, I've been to Korea twice on 365. So I was gone for 365 days, unaccompanied wow. tour. Um, and this, you know, the first time we didn't have any kids, but the second time we did. And so she was raising, you know, my son was, you know, eight months old, I think at the time when I left. And so he was, when I came back, he was 18 months, right? I mean, it, it just time flies, right? You come back for wow. a mid tour yeah. for a month and then you go back for six more months. So, you know, he goes from, you know, eight months old to 20 months old. And there's a, there's a huge difference, right? When you, for your kids and for your family. And so what, what ends up happening is as a family unit, you, everybody has their roles and responsibilities within the family unit. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you understand and know those, rules and norms, right? So if it's my job to take out like just something simple, right? Take out the trash. And sure. then it, it, you know, if, if my wife did, you know, the planning for whatever grocery stores or, or whatever it is. Right. And then, so we all had shared resources and responsibilities and then you pick up and you move and you're gone for eight months, right? Everything that you did now gets absorbed by her. And then while you're gone, everything that she did, you get absorbed, right? So there's some autonomy that has to happen within your own self to, to be able to navigate that. And then you get used to that, right? You get used to whatever it may be. And I'm telling you, it may be a, something as simple as what time you eat. Um, mm -hmm. And then when you come back together now, then there's that meshing period where you have to figure out what all that means, right? And these are just the roles and responsibilities prior to leaving for that deployment, then sprinkle on top any trauma that may have happened. Right. Yeah. So for instance, yeah. the first time I was in Korea, somebody showed up at our house. So my wife, no kids um, at the house, two o'clock in the morning, the doorbell rings, answers the door and somebody says, Oh, you know, I, I noticed you're alone and, and your husband's been gone for a while, you know, whatever. And so she's like, Hey, like get shuts the door, the whole nine yards. And next thing you know, she wakes up the next morning and the tires are slashed from the car. Right. That's traumatic. Mm. So somebody has been yeah. watching the house. Somebody has been paying attention, you know, and then there's, there's an action now against that. Right. And so that's trauma. Right. Or like when I was in Korea, you know, they fire missiles over North Korea will launch missiles ever so often. And you hear about it and you see it on TV. But when you're in the country and the alarms, you know, everybody's getting the alert and you're in the military. And so everybody's on higher alert. That's traumatic, right? Because you, know, you get rocketed out of bed at two o'clock in the morning and that's traumatic. So just the mesh point of normal roles and responsibilities and learning how to fit back together and then on top of that, you sprinkle in whether it's, you know, PTSD or just, you know, the, the craziest things. And you and you can ask 
any military spouse. The craziest things are always going to happen when the other spouse is deployed. It just it just okay. does. Right. It just does. The transmission blows up. Something always happens where and then yeah. they're having to navigate that when you're, you know, five time zones away. Right. And so and then on top of that, you have trauma. Right. And so from a spouse and a family unit, everybody's glad to have you back. Everybody, you know, they're in. So you're trying to figure out those roles and responsibilities again to include kids. Right. So our kids get up and they have a routine. And if and if for me, I'm not familiar with that routine and then I go to inject myself into that routine again, what happens? Right. There's strife. And, and even at the kid level, because the kids are like, hey, wait a minute, we don't we don't do this first. We do this first and then this. Yeah. And it yeah. throws off that routine, which adds to frustration. And then you have frustration, you have roles and responsibility conflict, and then you have trauma on top of it. So to be able to navigate through all of that time and time and time again, I was lucky. I, you know, I did um, two 365s to Korea, and then I did a deployment early, wasn't very long, to the Middle East, and then a another 210 uh, here recently. I'd say, wow, it's been five years now. But so you know, five significant events over 22 to 26 years. Um, and that's tough to navigate. It's tough to navigate yeah. from a yeah. family perspective, from a, a career perspective, right? Because when you get back, you know, there's also getting back into the unit, you know, reuniting and, and integrating back into the unit. And then because while you were gone, somebody did that job. They just didn't. And the, yeah. life moves on. And so that's sometimes that's tough to navigate too, to figure out where you fit in the unit again, where you fit at in home again, who, how you've changed as an individual over the past insert, whatever, six to 12 months. And, you know, what does that do? So the average human only has, you know, two or three pivot points in their life where they fundamentally change direction. Wow. And wow. that's just a known fact, right? So mm -hmm. for the most part, we're good. And then you have, some epiphany or you have an event that transforms your direction and you move in a different direction. And that only happens, you know, two to three times in one's lifetime. And, and so during those events, those, those pivots, super, super tough, super tough, mm. you know, sprinkle in alcohol abuse, you know, things of that nature. And now it muddies the waters even more, right? It's harder to navigate because, now you're you're self-medicating and you're you're trying to navigate this on your own, right? And and from a very, very young, young, young perspective, joining the military, adapt and overcome, improvise, right? All these things yeah. are normalized in our thought process, right? You can figure this out. You know, it wasn't until here recently where we valued more of the team. And how do we leverage everybody's, you know, talents within the team in order to navigate yeah. whatever it is? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that's difficult because for us, you know, like we can fix this. It, you know, we did sure. this. I went through this. Now I can and fix this and then move on with life. And and now that we've started to normalize a little bit more the mental health perspective of it, you know, that's starting. People are starting to come out a little bit more and feeling, you know feeling more open to share, to share, you know, what their story is and what they've gone through. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. That's, that's actually super helpful. Um, because it's hard 
for somebody somebody like me who you know i've never been in any kind of a military context you know um and there's you know a lot of people like me i'm guessing and uh wanting to understand you know wanting to that's the reason i've been having several of these conversations lately and by the way i should i should mention um just a shout out to dr janelle uh, royster for connecting us together and uh yeah, and helping us to to kind of initiate this this conversation here i've been having a lot of these conversations lately because i'm i i want to i i just i want to know more i want to know uh, because it's it's a it's a problem there's there's so many um issues associated with this and I, and I think one of the things that I didn't understand until I started having these conversations and even in what you just said just now some light bulbs were going off in my mind I'm like oh so yeah it's so much more than just the fact of being away um in a in a context where maybe there's some trauma and then there's some post-traumatic stress as a result and you know it's these different things like that right it's the but but then it's it's not just that it's also all the other stuff that's weighing on you like if you do have a family back home and you're away from them for a year or six months at a time or whatever the case may be you have small kids at home that are growing up where you're like you know thinking about all the stuff that you're missing out on but yet living in this and having to live in this hyper vigilant state as a person who's in the military and you know needing to work and very often times these life and death kind of situations where seconds matter where milliseconds matter sometimes and mm -hmm. you know these situations where um you are as you mentioned you're being changed and transformed as an individual in terms of the way that you think the way that you respond and when you put all those things together you know not just the the, the fact of where you are in the stress of the job and the atmosphere and all of that the fact that there's people who's maybe their lives depend on you all that kind of stuff but then all the other stuff that's also weighing on your mind of life back home and you know what am i missing out on and all and all these other things right and so it's so it's light bulbs are going off in my head and it's so easy like when someone like you explains this <laughs> to me it's like man um you know there there needs to be more knowledge around this i think there needs to be more empathy around this there needs to be more understanding i think better education just just everything in general and you know that that uh, i think that these kinds of conversations are are important to foster this kind of uh you know understanding and i one of the things that i think that i mentioned to you on the phone when we talked a couple weeks back uh, something that I really, really appreciate about what about what uh, Liberty does is that you also work with the the spouses Absolutely. of those that are you know on active duty and that are veterans Absolutely. and that are emergency responders, um, because that's a whole nother side of the of the equation here, where I think so often the husbands and wives of those that are on deployment and that work in these emergency response jobs that uh, so much of what weighs on their minds and them holding down the fort at home and filling in the gaps and all of those kinds of things. And, and I just think that, um, you know, again, I, I appreciate you for being here and appreciate you for everything that you just shared uh, because you're helping me have better understanding so that I can be, you know, more yeah. knowledgeable. And, and maybe in some so ways here's the thing. We all, we all have these things, right? And so I don't want to, I don't want to glorify and say that, you know, our military should, you know, this and that and the other, right? Because that, if you ask anybody, right, when, when people say, oh, thank you for your service. And if you were to pull somebody aside and be in that subculture of the military 
and say, how does that make you feel? Like when someone says that, it makes you feel, for me, in my, my you know, circle of friends, it makes you feel uncomfortable a little bit, right? Because that's our, because okay. you think about it, some of these guys and gals like myself were 18 years old, right? I mean, the, the frontal lobe is not even mm. fully developed. And so we've been yeah. in that culture for so long, that's our norm. Right. Our norm, what we do is normal to us. And so when people are like, oh, thank you so much, it's almost like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to respond. Right. So one of my mentors was like, hey, it, it, just say, hey, thank you for your support. Like, because that means just as much that reciprocity that, okay. hey, you know, thank you for that support, which is which is huge. And our first responders go through the same thing. Right. But we all have our life. Right. Like, for instance, you. Right. You just mentioned that you had a, a newborn baby. Right. So if you're mm -hmm. out and about and, and your wife calls, she's like, hey, we need right diapers or, or whatever. And now in the back of your mind, like, OK, I got this. I got to I got to take care of that. And then, you know, there may be, you know, whatever it is. Right. We all have a bazillion things going on that absorb our you know, attention span sometimes. And, sure. you know, you have folks that come for counseling and and you're thinking through that in the back of your head and. And next thing you know, you know, you're backing out of a tight parking spot because you just got the diapers, but you're thinking about the counseling session and you back into a car. Normally, you would never back into a car. Right. You're always mm. aware. But that's what happens. It, it's no different in the military. It's no different for our first responders. And trauma is trauma is trauma. It doesn't matter. Right. So, for instance, you know, we, we always focus on the military member. Right. Getting shot at, getting blown up, getting this and that and the third. But when we do what we do and we run our, our folks through this protocol, sometimes it is the most recent trauma. But that but for, for a vast majority of the people, it's trauma from childhood. It's trauma wow. from years and years and years ago that they haven't been able to process. I'm a prime example of that, right? So when I was 13 years old, my cousin took his own life. That was a traumatic event for me, right? Mm -hmm. Going to the funeral. Sure. Um, you know, reaching down involuntarily, reaching down and grabbing his hand as he was laying in the casket. I, that was the first time I touched a dead body. I completely froze. And that was very traumatic to me. Right. That was very, very traumatic. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, fast forward just another six years. My father on Christmas Eve night in 1994 had a double brain aneurysm. Wow. He survived. But that's trauma. Right. And then that same day, Christmas Day, you know, uh, I got, you know, my mom gave me uh, money. Um, you know, we didn't have the, the most money in the world. We, we grew up OK, but we didn't have a lot. And mom gave me uh, I want to say it was one hundred thirty seven dollars. And she said, put this in your wallet because we're in downtown Richmond. And if we get robbed, they're going to rob me, not you. And just keep it safe. And so I was like, OK, fine. So we're sleeping in the floor of the MCV. Medical College of Virginia uh, waiting room for the neurosurgeon to figure, you know, if he's going to save dad's life or not. Yeah. And what ends up happening is, is somebody saw me take my wallet and slide it into the bag that I was laying my head on on the floor. And they pulled my wallet out and took the $137, chucked the wallet can and disappeared. Wow. And so that was very traumatic you know, to think about that. So for Christmas, for me, not a good time, not a good time at all. Uh -huh. You know, like I didn't get excited about 
flights and I didn't get excited about any of that stuff. Now my dad survived and he went on and lived for, uh, you know, several years after that. But during that time frame, as a 17 year old male at the time, I had a sister and a mother. So the idea that I had to, you know, abandon any idea or hope or going to college and then go get a full-time job to help support the family and, and do all that and, and the responsibilities. Cause I saw what my father did for our family, for the family unit specifically, you know, taking that on at 17 years old, that was a, that was a big deal. Right. Yeah, so yeah. for Christmas, Christmas was not a good time. You know, it was not. And, and even when I got married and we started kids and, that was not a really good time until I, you know, I went through this protocol and I was able to process that memory. And then, you know, now, you know, it's like Clark W. Griswold at our house. We lights everywhere and, and you know, huge, huge celebration as it should be. Um, awesome. But that was very, very traumatic. Yeah. And, it, and it's from a long time. So people there's a, I think there's a misconception. People automatically assume it's all combat related. Uh, which is not right uh, of the 160 some people that we've worked with in the last, I think 125, 30 days, the average time that they've carried that trauma is 14 and a half years. So, you know, if you're working with a 35, 40 year old person, we're talking early adulthood um, trauma that people have carried. And, you know, and yeah. like we said, we work with veterans and emergency responders. So you would think it would be all, you know, duty related, you know, combat related things, but you know, some of it is 15 years ago. Wow. I have so many questions um, on, on that. So no, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me the way that the way that things stick into stick in our minds and how, you know, you can have one of these experiences from the time when you're a child or you're a teenager or however old you are, but maybe, you know, from a number of years ago, you have an experience that was traumatic. But, you know, especially as a kid, like you don't even really know unless someone tells you, you don't know that you're experiencing trauma. You just had a traumatic experience that maybe you kind of locked away. And now for whatever right. reason, you know, uh, you you go the next several years and I think that that's a story that a lot of people have of, you know, there's so much fun and celebration and enjoyment around Christmas, but there's so many people, just for example, that go through the Christmas season and it's a miserable time for them because they connect that with the memory of having lost a loved one or having gone through something tragic, you know, during that time of year, or, you know, people do that with birthdays, people do that with all kinds of different things, right? The way that things stick in our minds, and they get connected, we connect memories with emotions in a certain way, that I think becomes really, really difficult and challenging to process. You know, most of us are not that self aware to even know that something's going on that needs to be processed. And then so I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, you're mentioning that that oftentimes you may have somebody who's been in a, you know, so somebody who's um, either active duty or they're a veteran or they're an emergency responder. And so they've been in traumatic situations on their on their job during their career. But it might be that there's actually something in their past that predated all of these things that was a source of trauma for them. Again, losing a loved one or just going through some kind of a traumatic experience. Do you think that there's a, I guess I'm wondering, I'm not totally sure how to phrase this question. So maybe you could help me decipher it a little bit. The, is there a, is there a connection there? So 
is it that the trauma from the past becomes exacerbated by the more, you know, maybe something that's more present that happens from being in a stressful environment and situation that can kind of cause that thing from the past that maybe wasn't having um, as big of an effect or maybe it wasn't as as prevalent in in the mind of the person, but then experiencing some more recent trauma sort of causes that thing to kind of go off in their mind and now become something that is more, um, you know, emotionally challenging to walk through or something like that. Does, does it make sense like what that. I'm asking you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's complex. PTSD is what you're describing. Okay. That's what it boils down to is, is yeah. in a vast majority of this is at the sub, you know, as at the unconscious level, right? It's just, it's in the background, your, your body is a sensor. Everything around you is absorbing information all the time. Your brain's processing that all the time. And so when you have that traumatic event, you know, and then you have cues, right, on a, you know, a subconscious level, things that, you know, were there, right? So let's, let's take this very simple. Let's say, um, you know, we're out in the wild. And there's a lion. It's 85 degrees. The wind's blowing, you know, five to 10 miles an hour. The color of the wheat is this, whatever, right? Um, and you almost died. So your brain records that. Now, only roughly, we know, statistically speaking, about 10% of people are going to be, are, you know, are going to get PTSD. So you can expose, you know, 100 people to a very traumatic event. Statistically speaking, only 10 people is it really going to stick with and cause long, long-term chronic right effects of PTSD. So when your body absorbs all that information, it's it's always there, right? At the subconscious level. Mm -hmm. So when you're out and about and you see the color of the wheat or the sound that it was making, or whatever was around that specific event, sight, smell, anything part, you know, sight smells sounds, any of that stuff that your body would pick up on, that's when your amygdala starts to starts to fire up, right? Be like, whoa, last time I was here, there was a big lion. And we almost died. And I, didn't, I don't want to die again, right? People yeah. call it a disorder. Your brain is actually working how it's supposed to, which is to keep you alive. True. To keep you alive. The last wow. time you're in this situation, you almost died. So what are we going to do, right? We're going to dial, you know, we're going to divert blood from our extremities to our heart and lung and, and our thighs. Why? For that, so we can run faster and, and get away from whatever is going on, right? Or fight, fight, flight, freeze, or fold. That's what the amygdala is there for. Yeah. So what happens over time is if you have complex PTSD, now you're starting to layer those things in there. So you could, you know, theoretically speaking, that stuff could blur between event to event to event. So I've had the same whatever that trigger is, and you may not even know it. Like some people don't even know why they'll have a panic mm -hmm. attack and won't even know why. And it's their body's picking up on something and it remembers it. The brain is always recording. And so that's where, you know, to, to get back to your to question is, is how does that work? Right. How does uh, early trauma affect a, you know, it's compounded. It's just, it's literally just compounded and layered on top of each other. And the good thing is, is with this protocol that we use, you know, we can go all the way back and we can work on that first trauma. 
or the worst trauma. And then once you give your brain a tool to use, well, now it can process all the other traumas. And so what ends up happening is we start with the first or worst, the first session, do two sessions. And then the second time we meet, we'll do two more on the opposite, right? So if we did first, let's say we did the worst on the first time, we'll do the first on the second time. And it's a bookend. And so all the traumas that are in between will release. And those memories that are stuck, for lack of better terms, in the amygdala with that negative attachment will disconnect and go to where they belong um, up in the hippocampus part of your brain. And then you wake up in the morning and then some of this stuff that you don't even realize it until, you know, days and weeks after you go through the protocol, when you recall that traumatic event, you're like, wow, I don't have a negative attachment to that specific memory. Normally, right. When I would think about something, I would get upset or, you know, for instance, let's say my, uh, my cousin suicide as a senior enlisted leader of, a squadron, you know, sometimes 500 people in the squadron. And during commander's calls, during, you know, you have, you know, you stand up and you do, there's a ton of resources in the military for, you know, suicide awareness and PTSD and things of that nature. And so as a senior enlisted leader, it is your job to get up there and make sure that everybody all the time knows about these resources. Because you don't know, right? Like you could have a young man or a woman come into your unit and be 18 years old, fresh out of tech school, and not understand all of the resources that are available. Sure, to them. sure. And, and and that's a huge thing, right? And so, but the crusty 20, 22-year you know, person who's been in forever is like, yeah, I've heard this, right? Like, get on with it. So before I had this protocol, I would stand up to my squadron and I would say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we have the chaplain, we have mental health, we have, you know, the pillars of fitness, right? All these things that we try to work on to, to get you out of, you know, a parasympathetic state of mind. I mean, a sympathetic state of mind and be able to, you know, not be resilient, just be more resilient and overcome whatever it is you're going on in your life. Right. Um, USA Today did a poll uh, several years back and said the number two the most stressful job in the United States of America, number two on that list was enlisted military. Mm. So we know we live in a pressure cooker all the time, yes. right? And that is another dynamic that we have to deal with, right? And so if it's physical fitness and running and getting, you know, getting that body moving, getting the endorphins moving, all helps out your mental health, right? Which is counter, you know, you don't want to run. Trust me. If anybody's ever been through any depression or anything like that, you're like, I, I really don't feel oh, like going yeah. running right now. Like that's not, that's not my priority. Um, the hardest things to do are the ones that are not on your priority list. Right. And so it's super important. But as a senior enlisted leader, when I would stand up and I would get to the topic of suicide. Now, granted, I was 13 years old when my cousin took his life. Right. He was 10. I was 13. Mm -hmm. Fast wow. forward 17 to 20 to 20 you know, plus years in the future, when I would say or just start to breach the conversation, my chest would just tighten up. Uh, you know, I'd start sweating. 
And, you know, I've done speeches, leadership speeches specifically for, you know, 2,500 people. I, like, I have no problem speaking, public speaking. But when I talked on that topic, boy, that amygdala just fired white hot. Took over everything. And every single time, it had the exact same response. So if I moved from squadron to squadron, it, it did the exact same thing. And now, after I've gone through the protocol, I'm able to articulate those messages a thousand times better. And not just that, right? So Scott Mann, if you've ever looked up any of his work, he's a lieutenant colonel, Green Beret. You know, he has a, a TED Talk about the generosity of scars. And that's a huge scar that I had on my heart that, you know, I couldn't cover up from a, from a physiological response. I could not cover that up. And now that I've gone through that protocol, I can openly talk about that, right? I can talk about mm. walking into uh, the room and seeing him for the first time. Cause they kept him alive. They tried to keep him alive to see if his brain would recover. And so I remember walking into the room and freezing and, you know, and looking over in the corner and my uncle talking to me about how, you know, he can still hear you and he loves you and you can, you know, give him and all this, this stuff. And, I, you know, I was 13 years old at the time. It just I, I couldn't deal with it. Right. I couldn't deal. Wow. With it. And but that was imprinted on my brain forever. And to be able to articulate that, to be able to articulate, you know, go into the viewing right before his funeral. And what happened during that and sharing that scar, right? They didn't understand because they see senior enlisted leaders. They see pretty much this is how it goes. Everybody in a leadership role, their lives are perfect. They don't have any stresses and they walk around, right. you know, shooting sunshine and rainbows all the time. Yeah. And so for me to be able to share that scar, right? That fibrous mm -hmm. tissue, that, that connectivity tissue now, when I share those stories, I cannot tell you how many people come out of that crowd and come up to me and say, you know, chief, thank you so much for sharing that. I had a family member that did this, or, you know, I had a spouse that did this, or I knew this person. And what you do is you start to make that bond. And when you make that bond, you know, that generosity of a star, like Scott says, Scott Mann, uh, you know, it, that's when you start to really, really, really form tight knit bonds of trust and mutual respect. Wow. And that is how you transform cultures, right? You, you transform cultures through, uh, you know, mutual respect and trust. But you, mm. you, I, you know, for me, I couldn't do that for, you know, a, a while. I couldn't share those stories. And now to be able to share that story is just fundamentally transformed how I view interacting with, with almost everybody. And so, mm. you know, a lot of people cover that stuff up and they, they try to hide that scar um, where, you know, a vast majority, like the folks that really punch above their weight, those are the guys and gals who can stand on a stage, deliver a phenomenal message, right. And be very, very vulnerable. And then that vulnerability through a scar is how you start to make connections, build teams, and really transform how your organization will work and 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 push and drive. And so when you see when you see that individual, I just don't see Duke, right? I see that 
phenomenal story that you've overcome or whatever it is in that shared scar that we have is the foundation that build off of. But without that, you, you really don't know. And it takes yeah. years and years and years to get to know somebody. Right. So that, mm. that is amazing to be able to use this protocol. Step one, take care of the trauma. Step two, right after that, I'll meet with them and say, all right, you know, now you can share this and this, the thing that has held you back forever. Now you can use that to catapult yourself to even higher, right? Use that. And that's the first thing that I do. I, I share that. Go watch this, go watch this TED talk because it's amazing. And then, you know, reach back out to me and then we can help, help you work on your story so you can connect yes. with other human beings, right? Yeah. The, the human life experience is all about connections. And so that's that's what we are doing at Liberty is helping people overcome that trauma and then helping them go live the life that they were put on this earth to do. You know, yeah, that's, that's the greatest thing that we can that we can do for sure. Yeah, what you just said speaks so, so much to the importance of being of really experiencing healing and experiencing freedom um, in your mind. You know, so we're talking about uh, post-traumatic stress, complex trauma, you know, being able to really experience that freedom, first of all, of course, for yourself so that you can have a better life. But also, you know, on the other side of that is, you know, now your life and your experiences can become a story that can help somebody else. So if you're able to articulate it and you're able to talk about it without those sort of, you know, warning lights going off in your brain of I'm in a dangerous place yeah. and I can't talk about this, but you have the freedom now to articulate what you've gone through and what you've experienced, because there are so many other people out there that have gone through something similar um, or in some way that they can relate to the pain and the trauma that you've experienced in your past. And, and then you can actually help them to walk through and experience freedom and healing and growth in their life as well. And something that you said there that really uh, stuck out to me, going back, I think, several minutes ago, you said something about how, you know, when your brain connects that memory with or, or connects emotions to that traumatic experience that you had. And so now that memory from your past, you know, when something else kind of, you know, you end up in a similar situation, whether it's because of something in your olfactory senses going off you smell something that takes you back to that memory or you see something hear something feel something um you know whatever it is that is happening that kind of reminds you of that experience and kind of pushes you to have that fight or flight response that you said that that's actually your brain's normal response and it's your brain actually trying to protect you it's so interesting that there's it's working it's working overtime yeah. to keep you alive yeah. Yeah. Like trying to protect you, trying to keep you alive. It's it's amazing that there are things that our brain does. Our brain does this in the way that uh, our brain kind of holds on to information in terms of our subconscious minds, like the way that our subconscious mind works. It likes to keep us safe. It likes to keep us comfortable. And so maybe I've got a really bad habit and maybe it's I'm talking about an alcohol addiction or I'm addicted to smoking cigarettes or I'm addicted to pornography or I'm addicted to whatever it is. And so that actually becomes a in my in my brain's way of processing things that becomes a sort of safe zone for me 
so that now when I'm experiencing Absolutely. pressure of some kind or I'm experiencing some kind of a struggle or stress in my life, this thing goes off in the back of my mind that says, oh, go get your escape in this thing. And it just becomes something that helps to kind of seemingly ease the pain for that moment. It's actually very detrimental to my mental health long term. But in my mind, it's been built up as this thing that's become very, very comfortable. It's become my comfort zone. And so my brain actually yeah, fights <laughs> in a certain sense to kind of keep me there. This is, so, yes. Yeah, go ahead. I, I love this topic. This topic is absolutely phenomenal, right? So I get all fired up with this topic because, um, you know, it's resistance, right? Your brain is working extremely hard to keep you at status quo. It just is. Yeah. Yes. Right. Keep you safe to reproduce, pass on your DNA. Those like as humans, we overcomplicate a, a ton of things. And one of them is, I think, life's existence. And our brain <laughs> works extremely hard to keep the status quo. Right. Just yes. safe, comfortable, um, you know, so it works. And so there's, you know, <laughs> resistance, right? Resistance to give it a name, the things that you should be doing, the closer you get to your goal, the higher the resistance goes up, right? Mm, and yes. resistance can show up in self-doubt. Like you said, it can show up in addiction. It can show up in procrastination, right? If, if procrastination was Olympic sport, I'd be a gold, gold medalist oh, tomorrow. Bro. Right. Yeah, so I'd that sort Michael of thing of, um, <laughs> of that sport. Yeah. But it would be tomorrow. It would be tomorrow. I do it tomorrow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Procrastination pays off now. Hard work pays off later. So those, you know, that resistance is the same thing, right? Your brain's working super, super, super hard and people, whether mm. it's education, whether it's taking on a new job, whether it's moving, whether it's, you know, anything you're passionate about, like you're true, true passionate about it, the closer you get to achieving it, if you think about it, this is a perfect example, right? So when you're when you're going through college, there's a reason it's called senioritis, right? And you get in that last semester and all of those classes that you, you're like, Ugh, oh, I don't want, you know, the resistance starts to push back because the idea or concept that, man, I've got to live on the other side of this with this degree, right? And now I, you know, I have a responsibility to use it, to employ it, to all these things that I've learned, whatever it may be, just from an academic perspective, right? Is terrifying to the brain. Mm, yes. Same way with trauma. Same way with trauma. We've we've figured this out, right? So trauma, let's say suffer from trauma. Um, let's say I was in a horrible car accident. And that has stuck with me my whole life. And so everybody knows me as the guy who almost died in the car accident, right? Yeah. And I have what's called secondary gain, right? So people see me and they pick me up and they take me to work and they pick me up from work because they, they, they saw me go through this horrible thing. And for me, that's my comfort zone. I receive a lot of things through that trauma. And so I've learned to live in that. I've learned to maintain status quo, right? Just like who you're talking about. And it becomes very comfortable. So, so Scott, people and, and who have trauma will stick in that comfort zone because yeah. 
living life on the other side of the fence without trauma is even more fearful than what they've already gone through because what they've gone through, they've learned to know. So when we, when, I know when I work with someone, when Dr. Royster works with someone, if any of our practitioners work with someone, the first question they ask is they say, do you want to get better? Yes or no. And if the mm -hmm. answer is not involuntarily, yes, then we move on. Because if you're not committed to getting better, and if you're not willing to take that step because you're holding on to that secondary gain of, you know, I, I receive all of these things to help me navigate through life. And I have this network of people who are lifting me up and, and working to do everything for me. Now, I'm not saying they're not going through some serious things and, and fighting battles that the average person can't even imagine. Right. I'm very empathetic to that. But I also know that it is blindly terrifying. Mm. You know, there, there's a famous poet that says it's not our darkness that most scares us. Right. It's not the fear yeah. that most scares us. It's our yeah. light. Yeah, that's uh, Marion Williamson. Right? I think it is. Yeah. Yes. And so and that that, you know, because some people can't see that. Some people can't see you know, whatever it may be, leading a Fortune 500 company or, you know, whatever it is they're passionate about, right? Being an Olympic athlete, all these things absolutely scare the living bejesus out of people. Mm -hmm. And that keeps them in the brain, keeps them in status quo, right? There's a reason people don't get up at five o'clock in the morning and go running. And it's not because, you know, they don't hate that because it, you look on the other side, like, what is my responsibility? Those are, those scare me more the struggle, the grind, right? Because they don't know yeah. what that is. That's unknown. That's uncharted, unknown territory. And for the average person, that is terrifying. Terrifying. Yes. You know, and we but when we go around, it's the fear. It's it's darkness that scares us. It's this and this it's not. It's really not. It's like, oh my God, like I, you know, it's called self-actualization, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The top peer is is self-actualization and so when when you can really step into that right and like for instance michael jordan right michael jordan is that self-actualization lebron james self-actualization tom brady self-actualization you know that you know but there's very very rare does anybody actually reach that level in their life sure and so that scares people absolutely scares people and it's no different with trauma they've learned to live with trauma they have folks around them that help them navigate and, and and stay in that status quo because it's comfortable for them. And they've they've learned that that is, you know, they they know that, but it's more difficult to live on the other side and the the, the prospect of absolute prosperity, wow. you know, and, and not understanding, which is which is difficult. That's that's just one of the multi millions of facets that go along with trauma and just human performance in general. Mm. Scott, this is something that I, I talk a lot about in, in the area of growth and leadership. And it's, it's with that, the idea that you just expressed so beautifully with, you know, kind of coming to the edge of your comfort zone, that example that you gave of, you know, being a senior and you're looking forward to like what, what's, what's coming up next, which is terrifying. And so there, these things start to go off in your mind 
to kind of like try to try to almost self-sabotage, right? To kind of keep you where you are. And it just seems like, well, every every person, we all have a comfort zone. And for some, it's really, really, it's like really close. For others, it's it's further, it's further out. But we all have a comfort zone. And in order for us to really continue to experience growth and advancement in our in our life, we've got to continually push beyond the confines of what's comfortable for us, right? Because I think that not a whole lot of growth happens when you are inside your zone of comfort. And so kind of like pushing, pushing past those boundaries. But it does seem that way that the closer you get to the edge of what's comfortable for you, the more it seems like all hell breaks loose. And the more it seems like your your brain just kind of works against you to try to keep you into in that place where it's comfortable. And so this is something that I feel like this is this, this might be a sticky conversation. But um, but I feel like you just kind of opened the door to it. You, you talked about um basically people like yeah like like hiding behind trauma hiding behind past experiences hiding behind so and and look and and this is why i say this is sticky because i don't ever want to have this conversation in a way that comes off as judgmental or in a way that comes off as like belittling what somebody's going through and it doesn't matter you know if what you're going through is not as bad as what that guy's going through because you know, the, the trauma that you've experienced, like the worst thing you've ever gone through is the worst thing you've ever gone through. It doesn't matter if it's like if I put it on a scale and said, oh, it wasn't as bad as what happened to me or what happened to that guy. That's not the point. The point is, like for you, it's real. And that that response is happening in your mind where your brain is trying to protect you. And so, I, OK, so here's where I'm going. Um, I think that we can we can hide behind these things that are detrimental to us. Because in the moment, it feels safer. I think that we can start to define ourselves according to our past experiences, according to our trauma, according to depression. You know, we start to say things like my depression. We start to say things like my, you know, even like with physical illnesses, you'll hear people like my diabetes, like that kind of thing, where I'm like, like, hold on, maybe maybe don't internalize it and take so much ownership over it. Because granted, it's something real that's happening. But it's also something that you can begin to deal with. And so where is that line between because I, I feel like we, we definitely want to empathize with people where they are. Right. And not belittle anybody's trauma, pain, suffering, anything like that. But at the same time, it, it, where, where is that line where it's like, OK, but you're hiding behind something that you think is actually making you feel safe, but it's not letting you actually experience real freedom. So, you know, at what point is there that tough love thing that, you know, sometimes people need that kind of like kick to to kind of um, make those choices, to make those decisions, to really start to pursue and to go after these things? I think you, you definitely touched on this when you you were talking about that first initial question that you asked, like, do you actually want this? Do you actually want to get better? Because right. if you don't, there's no amount of anything that I'm going to say that's going to help you get there. Um but I guess just so, like that line yeah, between so, empathy and tough love and, you know, how, how that can kind of be navigated for people. So as humans, I mean, we have to understand and realize we can't fix everything. We just can't. And sure. especially, you know, married males know this more than anything, right? Uh, we can't fix everything, right? Sometimes it's just to listen. And so if people want to voice their trauma and talk about it, have, you know, the emotional breakdowns and things of that nature and, and 
get that out. There's a reason talk therapy is there, right? Um, and that's a that's a thing. It, it it just is, right? It's a thing. On the on the scale, the spectrum of is it effective or is it efficient? You know, that's that's for the scholars to debate. Mm-hmm. I think to to ultimately get to your question, like how do we help people just take that leap, right? That leap of faith. I think it has to do with trust. I know trust is a huge, huge thing and sharing that generosity of a scar, right? So if I can share my story and I can teach other people once they're on the other side of the trauma to share their scars, then with the normalization of mental health, right? Not the over-dramatization of mental health, but the normalization of, yes, like I'm having a hard time where before, you know, you think about it, our greatest generation, you know, raised my parents and now so it kind of trickled down a little bit that grit that tough it out kind of go back to work you know right you know for instance right. shoot, i want to say it was eight weeks after my dad had brain surgery he was back on a heavy equipment work in construction and i saw that and i you know my parents were way way like my mom and dad waited extremely late in life to have me and my sister and so i'm still connected to that that type of mentality where I saw my dad, you know, um, he, he was working uh, steam fittings and chopped off the tip of his finger, literally chopped off his finger. And he picked his finger up and they put it in a bag of ice and went back to the hospital. They sewed it back wow. up, put a big bandage on it. And then the very next day he was right back on the piece of equipment, you know, with his finger bandaged up all big holding on to the wow. doing his thing right back to um, bro my i, I remember yeah. one time my my dad was up in a tree and he was he was he had an axe and he was chopping branches off and he and he i don't know what happened he was up on a ladder in a tree chopping branches and whatever he did he came all the way around and he landed the axe in his kneecap and so my dad climbed down from the tree grabbed a beach towel we had a pool so there were always like towels hanging on the the sides of the deck the railings of the deck and so he he climbed down from the tree grabbed a beach towel wrapped around his knee jumped in the car drove himself to the hospital came back home like hours later and that was the first that we had heard that that happened (laughs) it was just like there was just a toughness that was just like i know i wouldn't be doing that i'd be on the floor screaming like call an ambulance you know what i mean it was just it was a different uh different those, breed of those norms those small like we watch that you know that's a big deal and those small norms get passed down right from generation to generation and just like you know when i grew up you finished everything on your plate why because my dad yeah. grew up during the great depression when they didn't know what was going to be on the plate tomorrow so you better eat it all today And so that gets passed down. And it's very hard for me when I see my kids, right? (laughs) Because I have young, three young kids. And when I see them not eat, my natural reaction is to say, hey, you got to finish that. You got to eat all your food. You got to eat all your food. And then I have to stop and say, okay, why? Why am I saying that? Right? Because that was Mm, passed down. You know, that was my great, great grandfather's perspective. Um, And the same thing goes with mental health, right? You think about it. My dad didn't talk about mental health. His dad didn't talk about mental health. None of this stuff was normalized. And so to normalize this 
and we have more people talking about it, I think is the first step, right? That's step one. Step two is I think we have to have phenomenal individuals in that arena, force multipliers who can share these stories, share that generosity of a scar, build that trust, show people what it looks like on the other side of the fence. And then as that happens, then you start pulling people across the fence with these tools that have been developed and refined over time, uh, i.e. the protocol that we use to get people on that other side. And then when they're on the other side and they, you know, they can release that trauma and the effects of their trauma, then they can, you know, you get them into leadership development courses and you get them into, you know, whatever it may be, self-improvement wise, right? I worked with a young man who suffered from trauma from age 18 to 35. He was 35 when I worked with him, right? So he was 17 years mm-hmm. of trauma. Horrible, horrible trauma. You name it, every pill in the world he took for anxiety, depression, um, you name it, like everything. College dropout, um, struggling you know, in his career, struggling with his fitness, just struggle, right? The str- he was on the struggle bus. And now he does public speaking. And after he's gone through the protocol, on stage, he has an axe and knives because he was he had to, he had to have weapons on him at all times. And he has pill bottles, all empty pill bottles, like stacked up. Right. Um, that showed his before life. Right. And now yeah. afterwards, he has you know, he's, he's real big into fitness and he runs. He, he does all the virtual online running. And so he wins all these medals. He went and now he's working on a master's degree in theology. Like this dude has just transformed his life. Mm. But that sticking point was the trauma. And so, and he does, he does phenomenal, right? Dan Starr is his name. Absolutely phenomenal uh, young man and and wonderful wife and, and him and his, and his family. And so that visual representation, representation of the two vastly different aspects of life. And I think if we can show that, right? Like if I could put, if, if we could get Dan Starr on the, on the national news and cover his story, right? That would be even more impactful in my opinion than right. Simone Biles taking a knee during the Olympics or, you know, other professional athletes that are willing to say, you know what, my mental or physical health is more important than this game or this job, or this career, right? Because they're not playing the infinite game. They're, it's very short-term goal-focused. Go, 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 you know, the whole nine yards. And so I think when we start to normalize that and we start to share those stories, those Dan Star stories of just the polar opposites of how those lives have, have been lived within the same individual, and then, you know, what what transformed them and what got them on the other side of the fence. And then what happens when you're on the other side of the fence and your aperture is opened up a lot more and you understand resistance and you do maybe some life coaching and you do some self-improvement, right? Whether it be in the form of education or just taking care of your body, right? Like you only get one yeah. body. It, yeah. You got to make it last. And, and if not, that's going to fail you. Like, you know, my my right after I graduated high school, I told you about how my dad was, you know, there's Chuck Norris and then my dad, right? I mean, he was that tough. And then 
So I remember him, you know, getting a cup of coffee and sitting there holding a cup of coffee. And my dad wasn't educated. Right. And he didn't have a college degree and and he worked construction his whole life. And so he's sitting there holding the cup of coffee and, and he looks at me and, you know, in my all of 18 years of wisdom in life, um, he looks at me and he says, Scott, he says, your body will fail you. It just will. It's not going to last forever. And the reason he was holding a cup of coffee is because the heat would warm up his arthritis. Right. And he had the big knuckles. And, and so he as he's sitting there telling me this and a vast majority of my life, I didn't listen to what my dad said because I thought I was smarter than him anyway. Um, sure. And, you know, he didn't graduate. And, and all this stuff, right? And so in my head, I'm like, ah, listen here, old man, I'm good. But for whatever reason, and I'm, and it may be God's intervention, but I'm super blessed that I was mature enough at the time to just shut up and listen. And he said, your body, you cannot rely on your, bro- your body. Your brain is an infinite resource. And you can do anything if, as long as you use your brain. If you wow. go to your body first, your body will fail you and you, you have wow. to go use your brain. And so that I got into the military. I did my four years. And that's when I, you know, my wife pushed me very hard because I, I joined the military to get an education. And at the end of my four years, I didn't have an education and I didn't, really didn't have any experience um, in the career field that I was in. And so that's when I started my education. You know, I ended up with a master's degree. But it came from that. I remember it like it was yesterday, him holding that coffee, riddled with arthritis in his hands, getting up. And he was old. He was already, you know, 60 years old at that time and going to work and working construction every day to provide for his family. And him saying, look, you have to use your brain. Your body will fail you. Your brain. Wow. You you can use it. It's infinite resource. And that's, you know, but once, once you get over that trauma. And you realize that with great life coaching, so a great support system, you start to share that star, right? And you start to build that trust. And that's when that's just a launch pad for success. And then you wow. just you can take off, right? You can take off and you can achieve, you can get over those barriers that you were talking about in your brain way quicker, way quicker when you have everybody rallying around you, lifting you up you know, for a positive thing about where you're going in your life. And and the same thing, the same support system that you had on the other side of the fence with your PTSD is going to love you the same on this side. And they're going to lift you up even more because they want to see, I mean, we want to see people succeed. It's so good, man. Those those words of wisdom from your dad that, that, that goes along so well with what you're talking about with, with resiliency and uh, this, this concept of like anti-fragility, right? And, and, and I think that we, we, we do for sure. I think that we're definitely overall people tend to be, we're, we're softer today. Things come a lot more easily to us. It's easier to, it's easier to get food. It's easier to, yeah, for the average person, let's, you know, let's say, um, you know, it's easier to right. do a lot of, especially in this country, right? Like it's easy, like a lot of things come easier to us. And, um, you know, I, I think doing things like you were talking about getting up and running and just like d- just different things that, that you can do to kind of train your your mind, your brain. Um, and then that does have an effect on your body as well, of course. But to, to train yourself to sort of develop some uh, resiliency in life, I think that that's that's really, really um, essential. And, and I think that 
what I one of the things that I would really like to see is more of a more of an acceptance around that of sort of like you know being resilient and being strong but with the but um also with an acceptance of of your emotions uh with an acceptance of it's okay to be emotional it's okay to admit when you're struggling it's okay to admit you know one of the things i think that you and i talked about um last time when we were on the phone we did we talked a little bit about that of like how it's not very normal for somebody for the average person to just admit i'm struggling you know like it, that's not like a normal thing even if we're not talking about people that are in you know military or uh emergency responder type positions i just think in general like the average man would probably have a hard time just admitting to his wife i'm struggling and this is going on and some of that is like you know a lot of times there's this broken concept in in our minds and and in our culture really that struggle is synonymous with weakness and um and then i think that that gets super yeah. yeah yeah good word vulnerability and i think that it gets super amplified when you're talking about men and women in the context of serving in the armed forces or you know some other extremely high stress environment you mentioned something earlier that i wanted to circle back to it just i just remembered it back in my mind you mentioned about like kind of being in that position of somebody like in the military for example and looking up at somebody in leadership and being willing to talk about uh share those scars so to speak being willing to talk about a struggle that they had or something like that and you said you know as somebody who's been in on both sides of that you know you're let's say you're new um you're a young person you're looking up to leadership thinking that like no like they're perfect they have it all together they don't have these struggles i was thinking about it from the other side as well of like being the person in that leadership role and the weight and the pressure of feeling like I have to have it all together and then comparing yourself to other leaders and looking at them thinking they have it all together. It really because they give the appearance that they have it all together. Meanwhile, in your mind, you're struggling, you're freaking out about stuff and you're looking at them. You're like, oh, but look at these people that have gone before me and look at these other leaders around me. They don't seem to be struggling at all. So I guess right. I just have to get over it. Or you start to even think like something's wrong with me for thinking this way or feeling this way. And I just think that overall, just, you know, finding ways. And, and so I love what you're doing, but finding ways to to foster these kinds of conversations and to foster this kind of thinking, really, I think what it comes down to is like, it's okay for me to find people around me that I can trust, that I can relate to, and to admit when I am struggling with something, I don't necessarily have to tell like every single gory detail to a whole bunch of people, but like to be able to admit to myself right. and to admit to others when I am struggling, when I do need to talk to somebody, when I do, you know, if I need to take it to that next level of going to counseling or going through, um, you know, getting connected with an organization like yours or whatever the case may be. But again, coming back to the fact that so much of this stuff that goes on in our brains is actually our, what, our brain is designed to do to keep us safe. It doesn't mean that you're a broken person. And, and really what you're going through is something that probably a bunch of other people around you are going through, but they're just afraid for whatever reason to admit it as well. 
they don't want to come across as weak or they don't want to risk, God forbid, losing their job or something like that because they're admitting that they're struggling with something. And so, again, just like all that fear and all that stuff that that goes on. I Again, I so appreciate you and, and everything that you've shared today. And uh, that's just something that, uh, you know, through through the work of this organization with Liberty and uh, others out there that are that are really, you know, focused on bringing help and healing um, into the lives of people and to families that have gone through trauma, that have experienced these um, post-traumatic uh, stress uh, situations and and stressful environments and complex trauma and all these different things to, you know, just in our culture in general, becoming more comfortable with the fact that admitting that you're struggling, admitting that you're going through something, admitting that you need help is not synonymous with weakness. It's not synonymous with you're broken um, and uh, being, I, I guess, just becoming more and more comfortable with um, the emotional aspect of, of our lives uh, with strength, you know, recognizing that we can be emotional and strong. And actually, it's a serious exercise of strength, right, to say, to admit that yeah. I need help. It's again, it's that's pushing that's blowing past that that comfort zone line. That's like it's so much more comfortable Absolutely. for me to just kind of hold on to this. That's an amazing feat of strength. And I think that we need to recognize and honor that in people when they're willing to step out and to kind of go against the grain and admit that they are struggling and admit that they need help or whatever that, you know, however that looks like for the individual person. But like that's an amazing just feat of strength um, of mental strength to do that. And I just um, I, that's something I would just love to see. It's part of the reason I've been, you know, wanting to have these conversations just on a personal level, just becoming more comfortable right. in daily life of, uh, you know, talking about these things that tend to be taboo subjects, you know. Absolutely. And you're right. It's super it's super tough to to do that because of the dynamics. Right. So if you're in wherever your, whatever your job is, right? I mean, there's always competition, right? You're, if you're looking to promote True. or excel in an organization and you have a peer group that you're, you're struggling, you're, you're sharing that, hey, I'm struggling with this, right? Now you have a limited resource environment in which there's only one promotion, there's five of us, right? So only one. So doing that, you, you think, oh man, I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna be used against me or, or whatever. Or when, in fact, when you do reach out for help and you get plugged into the amazing nonprofit organizations that are in this country, you know, there's 50, 60, I think, thousand nonprofit organizations in the country specifically for veterans. And then wow. there's a ton specifically wow. for emergency responders, right? We just happen to bridge both of them. And yeah. when you, Learn that those resources are there. When you're willing to get on the other side of the fence to overcome that trauma uh, and whatever it is, right? I mean, there's there's a veterans running club, right? If you want to get physically fit, or you there's there is a there is a nonprofit organization for almost anything, <laughs> right? Come on. And what happens is, is when you get plugged in, there's a sense of community. You have resources. People are lifting you up. They're holding you accountable, right? When you don't hold yourself accountable, they're going to hold you accountable. And what does that do for you as an individual, right? Gets those endorphins flowing, right? 
the cortisol levels in your in your body go down, right? Inflammation goes mm-hmm. down, anxiety right. goes down. Um, you know, you start to feel better, which which means what? Now you're a, a more efficient, high performing individual at whatever. Whether it's in your life, in your marriage, in mm-hmm. at your job, in your community, at your church, whatever that is, now you're able to dive in and provide even more. Right. So people are very reluctant to reach out for help, that comfort zone thing that we're talking about. And what does it do? It, it really stagnates them from growing and stagnates them from being a force multiplier in their community, in whatever it is. Right. Job, church, uh, community, it, just in life. And but there's there's organizations out there for everything. So I, I challenge any of you who are listening to this, if you're struggling and, you know, get plugged in, get plugged into the 60,000 nonprofit organizations that are, you know, that are here in America willing to help um, at a grassroots level. A vast majority of all these nonprofits, you know, scratching and one for every single thing they can to provide a resource to help a veteran. Right. None of these, you know, when, when we talk about nonprofits, you know, due to some of the other other nonprofits that are really, really big, heavy hitters that, you know, make millions and millions of dollars. You know, a vast majority of the nonprofit organizations are on a shoestring budget and they do absolutely everything they can and take money out of their own pockets to provide resources to help other people. They're just serving other people. And you start helping and you dive in. Well, now you're a force multiplier and you're helping out even more people, which, you know, it's it, it all comes back and, and you and you grow as an individual and you learn mm. um, and, you know, you just make yourself better and people around you better, which is which is just the big, you know, there's a wonderful quote that, you know, says if you're not making someone else's life better, you're wasting your time. And so, wow. you know, people who have those nonprofits, that's, you know, that's their motto. Kind of this is where we're at in life and we're just trying to help other people make the most of their life. Love it, man. Uh, it's a good word. Well, Scott, let's uh, let's go ahead and start wrapping this up, man. Um, Liberty Organization <laughs> yeah. for Veterans and Emergency Responders. You can find it at libertyove.com. That's li- www.libertyove.com. And Scott, if you would just take a minute and um, just any final thoughts on that that come up or if there's anywhere else that you would like to um, point people besides, um, besides that website, I'm not sure if there is any, anything like if there's a Facebook group or, you know, something like that, if there's anywhere else that you would point people beyond just the website itself. Um, but, uh, just any kind of like final closing, closing thoughts here that you have and anywhere that you want to point anybody to, and I will go ahead and and wrap it up. Yes, sir. First, first, I want to thank you. Uh, thank Dr. Royster for connecting all of us. Um, you know, you never know who you're going to come across and who knows somebody and, and get you in a platform or, or present opportunities. So first off, I want to say thanks uh, to both of you two. But it, for you know the people that are going to watch this, and you and you go all the way through the hour and twenty six minutes and get to the end. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you for staying plugged in. Thank you for everything you do. But if you're struggling from you know PTSD, you go to our libertyove.com. There's a get help now. Um, button and that'll bring up an email it sends me directly an email and I'll call you. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. Uh, and we'll get in touch and I'll put you in touch, you know, with someone who can help you. So first off, if you're struggling, you know, please reach out. There's that's there for a reason. Um, visit our, our website, 
you know, we, we didn't much about the protocol, but it's the trauma recovery intervention protocol, better known as TRIP. And once you go through it, you'll kind of understand what it is and, and, and kind of just open up your mind to a whole new different perspective when it comes to how to process trauma. Mm. And lastly, I, you know, I just want to say thanks to, we call it Liberty Nation, everybody that helps Liberty, you know, whether it's resources, whether it's volunteers, whether it is, you know, just hitting the like and share button on Facebook or Instagram or uh, LinkedIn, we're, we're on all the social media platforms to include Twitter. So, you know, I just want to thank Liberty Nation for helping us as we push, continue to push and push and push and push to help as many people overcome PTSD as we can. Because we know that life on that other side of PTSD is so much sweeter, you know, that fulfilled life, that loving life where you can help other people transform their lives and, and get even you know, better is, is something that is just truly a blessing. So I just want to thank Liberty Nation for helping us out and push, allowing us to go and push and, and be on you know, shows like this and, and to talk about these things and, and kind of normalize what we're doing. So people, there's less barriers to, to reach out and, and get help. You know, just the other day, you know, there's a, there's a nonprofit organization and, and I'm not going to say their name, but he was, you know, he was the president of that organization and they were specifically set up and designed to combat PTSD and suicide among the veteran communities. And, and that individual ended up taking his life. So, you know, we're wow. not immune to it, uh, even if we're all pushing um, and it breaks my heart because, you know, we, we, we have this protocol that's doing amazing, amazing, amazing things, and we're trying to get it to the highest levels. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we're, we're pushing at every, every venue. So, you know, we don't have to share that horrible news story that even a nonprofit president, uh, ended up taking his own life. So, wow. you know, that's what wow. we do. That's why we wake up in the morning. That's why we push hard. And, um, you know, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to to Duke and, and all his team. And I'm just super grateful and appreciative. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, appreciative of you, sir, for real. Uh, one, one other thing real quick that I wanted to ask you, I meant to ask you at the beginning. Uh, I just wanted to ask in the Air Force, what do people call you? Is it would it be Chief Hendrick or how do they refer to you in just, you know, if it's regular conversation or something like that? Yeah, it's just it's just either Chief or Chief Hendrick. OK. Okay, cool. Love that. Yeah. Uh, well, again, yeah. <laughs> thank you, sir. And uh, thank you, everybody, for taking the time to check out this conversation, whether you were watching live, listening to one of the podcast platforms, or uh, however you consume this podcast. Really, really appreciate you. If you have any additional questions, feel free to reach out. Again, sir, thank you so much again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody.